Well, as the story of David continues, remember last week was the whole episode of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And remember in that whole episode, God forgave David because he repented. Because I don't know if you noticed how brief his response was. Nathan confronts him with this story and David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, I made a mistake. He doesn't say, you know, there were some extenuating circumstances. He just says, I sinned, that's it. And he's given repentance But remember that God said that the sword, there's going to be consequences, David. You are forgiven. You're right with me. My promise to you that your lineage would have a king that would last forever over the kingdom that I am building, that stands. But in David's own life, the consequences of his sin would remain. Nathan said, the sword is going to devour. And in the chapters leading up to the chapter that I want to discuss tonight, we see exactly that happen. David is forgiven. Um, but there's all kinds of consequences that begin to unfold in his own house. And in this section, we we haven't read, and I'm not going to cover all of that, I'm just going to fly over briefly, but in this section, David seems pretty weak and passive. He seems to be, there's all kinds of things going on around him, sort of falling apart around him, and he seems to do nothing about it. So to quickly go over some of the, the things that unfold around him. His firstborn son rapes his daughter. It's a terrible story of his lust and then his hatred for his sister. And if you're paying attention, this should remind you an awful lot of what David, David did with, uh, with Bathsheba. Uh, it's almost like that fruit is being reaped in his own house. And David, when he hears about it, does nothing. He takes no action. It says he's angry, but he he doesn't do anything with that anger and do anything to to deal with it. And so Absalom, his son, is incensed by it. He cannot believe this. And so he secretly plots. And remember, he tells Tamar, don't say anything. And he is quiet for two years. But that quiet is a quiet of brooding over revenge and exacting vengeance on his, his brother Amnon. And so Absalom has Amnon put to death. And once again, David does nothing. Absalom runs away. He's he's in exile for years, and David does nothing. It takes Joab, his general, to say, hey, we need to bring Absalom back. And so because of Joab's intercession, Absalom comes back. But even then, David still seems passive. He's not an active agent in figuring out how to reconcile with Absalom. And Absalom just grows in bitterness and grows in resentment. And as a consequence, he's a very clever guy and a very appealing guy, something appealing to everyone. And as a consequence, he cooks up a coup that is successful in gathering and garnering the most of the people of Israel to his side. And so that's the context of our passage here. So again, David has been just not doing anything during all this time, and now Absalom has a great rebellion that is advancing to Jerusalem. That's the context of our passage tonight. And as we go, I just wanna encourage you to imagine what you're picturing, because it starts in Jerusalem, They will descend from Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley. They will then go up the Mount of Olives and there'll be several interchanges. They will go over the top of the Mount of Olives and there'll be interchanges there. It's almost like the reverse of Jesus' triumphal entry. 
It's almost like the reverse of the Israelites conquering the promised land. So note, there's, they're getting out of town. It's almost like a president leaving town on emergency and he's encountering all these people and having all these different conversations along the way. So verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and his household after him and the king king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. So David finally is acting. And I think in this first decision, he is sacrificing himself for the sake of the city. His point is that if we stay here, Absalom's gonna besiege the city and it's gonna bring death and destruction everywhere. So we're gonna leave, we're gonna get out. And he's finally acting kingly again. He sacrifices himself for the sake of his people. And notice that his movement is east and moving east in the Bible, especially in this context, um, speaks of all kinds of moments. Adam and Eve, when they're driven from the garden, go east. They're driven away from the presence of God, east. Israel, later, when they are punished for their continual injustice and continual idolatry, will go into captivity in Babylon to the east. In the Bible, when there's a movement to the east, it is usually in judgment. It is usually into exile and away from the promises of God and the presence of God. So David is bearing this consequence and moving eastward. Verse 18, and all, the, and all his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do, you also not, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered and said, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. So we have here a group of Gentiles. For sure, the Gittites were Gentiles because a Gittite is someone from Gath. And so this is a group of Gentiles that have probably attached themselves since David's time in Gath. Remember, he served the king of Gath, Achish. And so there's these Gentiles that are attaching themselves to David. You could put it this way. David starts out killing Gittites, killing Gentiles, and ends up converting them. This Gittite, Ittai, which is a fun name to say, along with Gittite, he, he's attached to David, and it seems like he's attached to David in faith, faith in the God of David. And he says, you know what? I don't care. I don't care that you're at risk. I am going wherever you go. And I don't know if anybody noticed, but his statement, let me read it again. 
as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Does that sound like anybody else in the Bible? And if you, weren't, if you were at UCF last night, don't say it. Does it sound like anybody else's statement to a, a Jewish person before? Ruth. Remember, Ruth goes back to the land with Naomi with no hope, with no promise of any, any kind of future. And she says, don't ask me to depart from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die too. This is a Gentile who has once again seen the God of this Jewish person and said, I am attaching myself to you in faith. Notice too that, that David says, I, I go, I know not where. It reminds me of Jesus' statement to people who said, oh, I want to follow you. He says, listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. He's modeling himself here. Um, Ittai is a model disciple, attaching himself again uh, to the people of God. And they cross the brook Kidron. And again, is this movement towards the wilderness. Verse 24, and Abiathar came up and behold, Zadok came also with, the, with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark until all the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Now, this moment reminds me of an episode earlier on in Samuel when Israel went out to fight against the Philistines and took the ark with them, and the ark was captured and taken. David, in a similar situation, says, no, I'm not taking the ark with me. David refuses to use God. He refuses to use God as somebody to prop up his own agenda. He is not going to engineer holding on to power at all costs. In fact, he says, if I lose power and that's God's will, that's fine. If he brings me back, that's fine. He is God and I will trust him. Just as David trusted in God to give him the kingdom in the first place and didn't grasp it, he trusts God to give him the kingdom back to him if it's God's will. This reminds me of something that was said in a very similar spot much later, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself goes into the loss of all authority on our behalf and trusts his father to bring him back into his his holding, his authority. But notice too, so David is pious. He's, he's devoted to God. But notice too, David is shrewd. At this moment, he says, listen, bring the ark back. If, if God is pleased with me, he will bring me back. But you know what? I need eyes and ears in Jerusalem. I need you to go back and I need you to listen to what's going on and I need you to send word to me. So David is pious, but he's also practical. As Jesus said, we're to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents, and David is both. He's innocent. He's not going to manipulate God and use God to advance his agenda, but he is going to be smart about what's going on, and he's going to ask these men to be allies of his in his son Absalom's administration. 
Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It is an incredible scene. David, the rightful king of Israel, is on the run from his own son. He's going barefoot. He has his head covered. He's weeping, and all his people are weeping with him. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of shame. It's a picture of sorrow. I think it's a picture on David's behalf of repentance. And it should remind us of another king of Israel who wept in the same spot thousands, hundreds of years later. David's passing right by the area where Jesus would have prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. David is pointing forward. He doesn't know it, but he's pointing forward to the sorrows and the tears of Jesus many, many years to come. And all his people are with him in this sorrow. Imagine a world leader today with this kind of humility, with this kind of embracing of maybe potential death and exile. Verse 31, and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Full stop. That's all that needs to be said. Ahithophel is an advisor of David, maybe one of David's most important advisors. And it turns out he has now joined Absalom's conspiracy. David knows that means disaster for him. He knows how David thinks. He knows where David goes, where he hides. He knows all David's thoughts. And David knows it's trouble. And so he says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This could be the end for David. He's getting out of town, but he knows this is disastrous. And David's only recourse is prayer. He's like, God, I am in deep trouble. I am at the end of my rope here. And unless you somehow intervene and, uh, and bring the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness, I am probably going to die. David, who authors so many psalms, crying out from situations precisely like this, continues, as he has always been, turning to God in a time of desperate need and asking him, uh, asking God to help. And I'll just notice, note that Ahithophel is kind of a Judas-like figure. And what underlines that even more is later on, Ahithophel will kill himself in the same way that Judas kills himself. He hangs himself when Absalom doesn't listen to his advice. So this is another connection to Jesus' passion story. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit, so he's been ascending and now he's coming to the top of the Mount of Olives that looks down on Jerusalem where God was worshiped, behold, Hushai the archite came out to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimehaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall, send me, uh, you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So David prays, God, confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. And just as he comes to the top of the hill, he sees his friend. He sees his friend Hushai. And he says, it's good to see you, friend. <laughs> and you know what? If you go with me, that's just going to be a burden. I need you to go back. 
I need you to get in the inner circle where, Abs where Ahithophel is with Absalom, and I need you to be my voice there. I need you to be my representative there. I need you to counter the counsel of Ahithophel. And that is precisely what he does. In fact, this is an answer to his prayer, immediately an answer to his prayer. And, and Hushai is absolutely instrumental to turning the course of Absalom's plans. Verse, or chapter 16, verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, so he's rounding the top of the hill, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me, never, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So this is, we gotta, we gotta remind ourselves who this is and what's going on. Remember Mephibosheth, was the last descendant of Saul, or Jonathan. And David had made a promise to be loyal to the household of Jonathan, and Ziba was his master, he, or he was his uh, administrator. And it really does seem like in this moment that Ziba is an opportunist, that Mephibosheth can't get out of town because he's, uh, he's crippled, and that Ziba comes to say, oh, Mephibosheth is going over to Absalom's side because he knows that precisely what David does is going to happen. David says, oh, well, fine. Everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. So Ziba is this opportunist. He's a greedy opportunist who's using this situation, I think, uh, to advance himself. He doesn't care about David. He doesn't care about Mephibosheth. And we'll see how this turns out later. 16.5. When King David came to Baharim, this is a little beyond the summit of the hill, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of, the, of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, on the one hand, I got to kind of hand it to this guy for his boldness. All of David's mighty men are there. Uh, I mean, there's a big entourage. Absalom's army is not there yet. He's putting himself to some degree in great risk but he's also wrong. He, he says that, he, by the way, using the name of God, he says that you usurped Saul's throne, which is exactly what David didn't do. He says, God is paying you back for taking Saul's throne. So he's using religion. He's calling himself a prophet and saying, uh, God is bringing vengeance on you. And then to make matters worse, verse nine, then Abishai, the son of Zariah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, Ay vey, 
What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along, went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. So picture the scene. This is King David, beloved King David and all his mighty men. And David says, leave him alone. Now, just to remind you who Abishai is, Abishai was, uh, was Asahel's brother. Remember Asahel who ran after Abner and uh, he wouldn't let up and Abner had to wind up killing him. And then their other brother, Joab, had Abner or killed Abner himself, all right? It's the Zariah brothers and they are hotheads and they act more than they pray. They do more than they seek God. They're vengeful hotheads. And David, I think at one level he appreciates these guys because they're, they're effective soldiers, but at another level, they don't understand his heart for God. And they don't understand his heart for God's ways and God's teaching. And this moment is incredible to me because David says, don't stop him. Let him curse me. Maybe God sent him and maybe God will see and God will take it into his own hands and he will, he will repay him uh, for this wrong that he's done me. Remember when David was tempted to get revenge on Nabal for cursing him, for dissing him, and Abigail intervened. I think David is still thinking about Abigail here and her wisdom. Don't let there be blood guilt on your hands. Don't take vengeance in your own hands. Leave it to God and trust him. And so finally, David trusts God. And then finally, it says in verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. This is about a 15 mile hike, all right? Not to mention all of these conversations and all of this anxiety along the way. And there he refreshed himself. I wanna suggest that this is one of David's better moments. All right, he's had some really bad moments. And after his sin with Bathsheba, he's passive. But in these moments, I think David shines in a lot of ways. He sacrifices himself for the city. He sacrifices himself for Jerusalem. He refuses to use God to hold on to his power, but trust God to give him that power if it's God's desire to do so. He mourns and laments what's going on. All right, he's not too proud to cry and to bring these things before God. He prays in desperation. He is practical and shrewd, all right? It's the old David who uh, was, was shrewd in his uh, rise to power. And finally, he does not defend himself when accused, but trusts God to deal with it. And of course, he is pointing forward to great David's greater son, all right? He's clearly, in so many ways, this text is just screaming, pointing forward to Jesus, Jesus who sacrificed himself for us, Jesus, who did not hold on to power at all cost, but trusts his father to raise him from the dead in his, in his due time. Jesus, who mourns and laments for the people who are opposing him and prays to the father that the father will forgive them. 
who Jesus, in the moment of his worst shame and worst sorrow, is thinking about his mom and thinking about how he needs to have John be his mother's caretaker and take care of her in her old age. Jesus, who, if anybody could have said, your accusation is wrong, and defend himself on the cross before Pilate, before the Sanhedrin, he doesn't do it. And of course, that's an admonishment to us who are in Christ. Us who have been baptized into the name of Jesus, who because of the Holy Spirit have been given the mind of Christ. Where we are called not to hold on to power, not to hold on to reputation, but to empty ourselves and sacrifice ourselves, consider others more important than ourselves. Who are called to mourn and lament and share in the sufferings of Jesus in this life. Who are called to pray for those in authority, to pray for God to do what He can so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. Who are called to wrestle with our Father's will to find his will and say, Father, if there's any other way, but I trust you and I'm committed to what you want me to do, who are called to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents in all the ways that God calls us to serve and ultimately are not called to defend ourselves, but to trust God, all right? Even a bad sermon can preach and David is able to hear something, something of God's chastening in, in the sermon uh, in the sermon of Shimei. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up. We'll come to the Lord's table.